I hear Bibles coming out. You know it's time. If you'd like to read along with me as we come before God's Word, we'll be again in Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis chapter 3, but before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, your word says that Satan has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they would not see your gospel. Lord, we ask your mercy upon us that you would remove any blindness that remains over our eyes. Help us to see. Give us grace to receive these things that we would be changed by them and stirred to praise you. Guide my mouth now and our ears as we hear. Do all this by your spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a good number of verses to take up this morning. This is Genesis in chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 13 to catch the end of where we were last week, but this will carry us all the way to the end of the chapter. So Genesis in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then... The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. 
Now, this was a difficult sermon to prepare. They're always difficult, I suppose, in some ways. But this one was particularly difficult, not only because the main subject that we have at hand is a hard one, although it is. It's really hard. You'll see in a moment. But it was difficult because, for me, I had to face the reality that we were not going to be able to stop and and camp with a lot of the things that we find in this text. I mean, we've already been in Genesis 3 for a month, after all. There are so many things in Genesis 3 that deserve their, their own sermon, but, but we just can't, we can't spend all year here. Uh, and so as much as it pains me, we have to just keep the car driving on through. But I cannot help myself, and so I want to at least give a few things a wave as we pass by them in the text. We're not going to camp with them, but I want to at least give them a mention. This is a quick pass. It'll be a bit of a blur, so get ready to wave fast. A couple of things that we won't be able to talk about. One is the, what's called the Proto-Evangelium. How's that for a word, right? Scholars call it this, which basically means the first gospel or the first good news, which appears here uh, in the curse uh, of the serpent in verse 15, that there's going to be this ongoing war between the seed or offspring of this ancient serpent and the seed of the woman, and they will strike each other, one at the head, one at the heel, and the seed of the woman will be hit, but will win. I'd love to talk about that, but we can't. We'll wave as it goes on by. Other thing is, is to look at the, this new human struggle that's now woven in, in the strife between the man and the woman, that, that her desire is going to be at odds with his, but he will rule over her. Have to give that a wave. We also see in here that God gives a thought that is unfinished. In verse 22, he, he, he starts a sentence, lest the man would also take from the tree of life and live forever. And then he just doesn't finish the thought. It just drops off and doesn't finish what would have happened if he had taken of the tree of life and lived forever. It's as if the thought of man living forever now in his current fallen state was something too unspeakable to name. And the last big thing that we don't even get to really look much at is is just this general ejection from the Garden of Eden, that that God doesn't bulldoze the garden. It stays there. But he blocks the human's entry by way of this warrior angel with a fiery sword that seems to move on its own, and Adam and Eve have to leave to the east. The text is specific about that, not just because it likes to give directions. They went to the east, turned left at the McDonald's, passed, you know, at street so-and-so, but because this east is part of a bunch of echoes, connections to the temple. That the Garden of Eden, as God made it, was a sort of temple of God. His dwelling place on earth. And that dwelling place still remains, even though man can no longer come in. Ah, have to wave. There's lots more uh, that I could give a good wave to, but, but we need to pull up the car, uh, uh, park here at something. 
And, and if we have to talk about anything at all here in the latter part of Genesis 3, we cannot miss the big picture. The main feature of this text is this. It's about curse. That'll be our focus today. Curse. What is this curse that God has brought as a result of man's sin? Curse is not a word that uh, many of us, including myself, use very often. I mean, for some people, just mentioning the word curse might bring to mind images of things like, I don't know, you know voodoo and, and witches and Voldemort. Uh, that's not really what we're talking about here. Those are sort of hexes, but not really curses in this sense. Other people might think of curse in terms of expletives, you know, curse words, bad words that we say. And, and most of the words that we call curse words aren't really curse words at all. Uh, most of those curse words are actually just obscene or filthy or crude language. Those things aren't the sort of holiness that we want, but they're not curses, all right? There's only a few curse words that are actual curses. And when a person says those words with, with flippancy or out of anger or frustration, it shows that that person does not understand the seriousness of what is coming out of their mouth. True curses are some of the weightiest words. Words like, go to hell, or God damn it. Those are real curses. Pronouncements of God's judgment. And those words ought to give chills to our spines. You do not want to take those words casually upon your lips. Not even Satan himself has the authority to pronounce that sort of curse. Satan is under the curse. He is not over it. These curses come from the mouth of God Almighty. Some people might hear that and bristle at the thought. You know, God doesn't curse anybody. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. We've just seen him do it here in the garden. In this text, God is not just passively stating the fact of a curse that's outside of his control. He is instituting it, pronouncing a curse here. And it's not just God being a big meanie. Even Jesus sometimes curses people. He mentions it at, at, at one point in Matthew chapter 25. This is in a larger extended section, but here he speaks of himself when he says in verse 41, then he, Jesus is speaking of himself, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Ah. Curse is, is sobering. A curse, God's curse, is the opposite of God's blessing. Not only the opposite, it's a removal of God's blessing. So we often hear here in worship and want to hear, it's right to hear, at the end, a, a benediction from God that is a good word pronounced over you. We hear it, it's come straight out of, out of number six is a common one. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Mm, that's good. Now imagine that you had to hear the opposite. Not a benediction, but a malediction a bad word pronounced over you. May the Lord curse you and reject you. The Lord make his face to darken upon you and bring judgment to, the, to you. The Lord bear down his countenance upon you and make war with you. That's a curse. And that's the effect of sin. Now I want in no way to make light of the situation with Adam and Eve here. The fall is a profound tragedy we should also notice that the curse that God puts upon them could have easily been far worse. God could have commanded and the lake of fire could have opened up and swallowed them alive with just one word. But God, in his mercy, withholds much of his judgment here. Man is cursed but not crushed. And the particular judgments that, that the Lord gives in this curse, they're, they're not random. He's not pulling things just out of the sky. These particular curses are in direct correlation to the things that they did or were supposed to do. Correlation to the task that, that God has given man who has been made in his image. They've been told to be fruitful and multiply. That's still the case. Although to be fruitful and multiply will now come with the added pain of childbearing. They've been told to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That's still the case. But that will now come through ongoing sweat and ache of toil. And because of their, their disobedience in eating of the one fruit, there's now fallout for everything else they will eat. The same good creation that God has made now all hurts. 
It all hurts. The curse has injected with it a spike of pain as part of the the product, the punishment of man's sin against God. I want, or I suppose I need, to make just a few observations now about the scope of this curse in the fall that begins here in Genesis 3. I'll make three observations about the scope of this curse. The first observation is this. The curse is on everyone. It's on everyone. This is not just upon Adam and Eve that their kids will get a a reset, you know, a do-over. This is a generational curse on Adam and Eve and all their children as she's the, the mother of all the living. We'll see just a few chapters later, but hundreds of years have passed by this point. In Genesis 5, verse 29, we hear when Noah appears, they say, they call his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. There's a, there's a note of hope here that maybe Noah will be the one who will be able to to take off the curse and give us some sense of relief, but but you can see that the curse, the, the felt sense of the curse, even still remains on their heads then. That's still true now. Your parents were born under this curse. Your parents raised you under this curse. If you have children, your children are under this curse, as are their children and their children. It is over everyone without exception. And even for those few people who don't seem to have, you know, painful work, not a day in their life, or or don't actually have to go through the, the physical pain of childbearing themselves, we know no one escapes the pain of death which is part of the curse, that that our lives are but a mist, a puff that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, he says, we all go to one place. We're all from the dust, and to dust we all return. There is no amount of fame or fortune or friends that is ever going to be enough to remove the curse from your head. It's upon everyone. It's the first observation. The second, it's not just upon everyone. This curse is everywhere. The curse is everywhere. This is not just upon Adam and Eve and then all of their posterity of humanity. The ground itself is cursed. Did you hear it in the text? It starts in verse 17. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The curse is everywhere. Romans 8, we hear uh, uh, Paul speak of creation in terms of creation being in bondage to corruption. 
Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the, f- the physical makeup of nature has necessarily changed. So there's some guesswork here, but, but we don't know that at the fall, when Adam and Eve bit the fruit, first bite, and God curses the ground that somewhere over in Australia, a mosquito pops up for the first time and, and sticks out his little you know, blood-sucking nose and goes looking for something to suck on. We don't know that wasps suddenly got a little stinger out their backside so that they can get us here at church when we're not paying attention. It's not as if sab- you know, saber-toothed tigers were little kitties before in the garden, and, and now they instantly grow these whew, long, carnivorous you know, teeth and claws and all that. We, we don't even know that necessarily thorns and thistles weren't part of the good creation that God made before. I mean, thorns, after all, have a good and proper use. They protect the plants that have them from being eaten so that they can reseed and reproduce. You know, the curse of the fall, after all, is not creating new life. We're not getting new plants or new animals, not even new germs or bacteria. The curse is an unmaking, not a making. We know there's, there's plenty of mystery here. The text doesn't spell out exactly how all of this plays out on the earth, nor does it need to spell it all out. That's not its intent. What it does say is that somehow the ground, nature itself, is cursed along with man. So a, the, the kingdom of a blessed king will also be blessed. But the kingdom of a cursed king will also be cursed. Which means everywhere that cursed man now sets foot, expressing his dominion under the fall, every place of that is now a cursed place. And as man destroys the dirt he walks on, the the dirt begins to destroy him back. It's not just the case with the ground under his feet, by the way. This is the case also with shrubs, with seas, with the skies, perhaps even with space beyond the skies as we continue to reach our hands out further and further. Not that we shouldn't do that, but we know at least there is not any preserved patch of paradise that is within our reach. There is some version of this cursed prick of the thorn everywhere. That's the second observation. It's everywhere. Third and final observation, the curse is every when. It's not a word, but you know what I mean. The curse is every when. At least as long as we remain under the fall, the curse continues. Adam's told this will be all the days of your life till you return to the dust. So just as there is not one square inch of earth that's immune to the curse, there is not one split second of the clock that's immune to the curse either. But that fact doesn't stop people from pretending otherwise. You know, crossing our fingers and trying to wait out the curse like a storm that we think might pass. You know, many people are consistently living for the next moment, waiting for it to be better than this one. 
just wait till I get older. Isn't that the dream of the little ones, right? Just wait till I'm big. Then our dreams morph as we get bigger. Just wait till I get a job. Just wait till I get married. Just wait till I buy a house. Just wait till I have kids. Just wait till those kids finally get older. Wait till I can pay off my debt. Wait till I get that promotion I've been gunning for. Wait till I have those grandkids. Wait till I can retire. Wait till I can get just a moment to myself. Wait for the summertime. Wait for the wintertime. Wait until I die. We recognize that there are some seasons of life that are absolutely harder than other seasons. We get that. And some of those seasons call for greater perseverance in us to hold fast to hope in those seasons. But we also need to see this. Tomorrow will be just as cursed as today is. Did you hear me? Tomorrow's going to be just as cursed as today is. <sighs> now, some of us may be going, preacher, <laughs> come on, <laughs> like... Give us a rest. This is a lot to process, a lot to take in, even emotionally. I mean, what good is it to know that the curse of the fall is for everyone, everywhere, every when? That just seems like a really big bummer. It is. It is a big bummer. And we need to hear the whole counsel of God, whether it feels good or not. Not just the verses that we like to highlight and quote, although hold on to those as well. We also need verses that we prefer to skim past. Perhaps we need those the most, because we tend to want to, to ignore them. But I will say there is good use for these, good help for us even to know this. Let me give, just to close, two good uses for all this talk about the curse. The first use is this. This will help us to endure the world as it is. Help us endure the world as it is. We need to recognize the cursed state that we are all in. And if you cannot face that fact, you will be continuously disappointed. There was an old dead preacher who preached on this text who said, if you come to expect the thorns of the curse, then when they come, half of their sting will be gone. To be forewarned, he said, to be forewarned is in great measure to be forearmed, to be armed beforehand. Now, knowing does not remove, we know this, it doesn't remove all of the pain of the, of the curse, but, but the Christian can be most prepared to face the worst of life because he knows that he's in a cursed world. Romans 8 speaks also of creation groaning in pains of childbirth. Everybody knows that childbirth is painful, right? 
it, you know, some maybe know it more than others, and maybe, uh, but we all know something about it. You know, either you've experienced it first or second hand, you've seen something on TV or heard stories, or, or there's farm animals that you kind of get a sense of how this goes. Somehow you know something that it's hard. But imagine if a person were pregnant and truly knew nothing of the process at all. Nothing of the cramps, the nausea, the contractions, nothing of the process of delivery. That person is still going to experience whatever pain she might have experienced. But without knowledge beforehand, she's also going to add to that pain the experience of being shocked and scared by it because she does not know that it's to come. Knowing this would help us in some sense to endure, but there's a second good use. It will help us to hope for the world as it might be. Help us to hope for the world as it might be because the curse extends to truly all. Everyone, everywhere, every, every when. It can be easy in that context to lose sight of the fact that this isn't normal. This isn't the way that God created us to be. Because we are all cursed, and we all look at other cursed people, eventually it begins to look like no one is cursed. This then becomes the new standard of normal, and if we see it as normal, then we begin to lose hope that it could be, might be, possibly be any different than this. But that's part of what made Jesus so unique. Jesus seemed really abnormal to a lot of people. But that's really backward. Jesus is really the only normal one. Jesus is the true human that made those around him see how abnormal we all have become. That Christ, this God in flesh, is the only uncursed one that shows us what we were meant to be. Jesus then offers to extend hope for the world, to uncurse the curse. And he does this not by just revoking the curse, by pronouncing it undone, canceling it, rolling it back. He does this by redeeming from the curse, that is, buying us back from under the curse, even at great cost to himself. So Galatians in chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Did you hear that? It doesn't say that Jesus became cursed, that he became a curse. The very curse is taken into Christ himself. That the sinless Savior became sin for us. Those very thorns that pricked Adam's thumbs now pierce Jesus' brow in the crown of thorns on his head. And Christ endured not just the physical pain of the curse, the spiritual pain. Jesus was truly God damned so that we would not be 
the scope of the curse is big. Massive, everyone, everywhere, every when. But listen, as big as that curse is, it will never be bigger than Jesus. We sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World, and we'll sing it in a moment. But it's not just for Christmas. There's a, there's a truth here, a good reason to hope that's for all seasons. There's a line in there that says this No more. Let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. Pray with me. Lord, help us to face this curse with all humility and soberness, but also with endurance and hope that as we turn from our sin, we would look to your grace and mercy and your profound love to make yourself a curse, to redeem us, to free us, and to bless us. You're a good God. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.